Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Yeah, welcome to the first part of our brand new series this fall, Disarming the Dark Side. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be delving into some powerful and sometimes peculiar matters. We're going to be talking about things like Satan and evil spirits and and demons and fallen angels and spiritual warfare, demon possession, exorcism, the origin and tactics of evil. Basically, we're going to be talking about a side of our spiritual walk that we have to admit is often brushed under the the rug in some Christian circles today. In some churches or some circles, spiritual warfare is kind of that part of Christianity and that part of the Bible we'd rather pretend wasn't related to us, right? Kind of like that weird uncle that you'd rather he, he weren't related to you, but there he is every year at Thanksgiving showing up, telling his racist jokes and staring at your wife a little too long. That guy... <laughs> You can't do anything about it. And I got to say, I understand the uneasiness about this subject. You know, we are, we're modern 21st century educated people. And, you know, we live in an age where we don't think thunder in the sky is because the the gods are angry or snoring, right? It's one thing to to go to your neighbor and and tell him that you believe in God and that, in fact, you follow the teachings of Jesus because he's changed your life. You know, we pat ourselves on the back for doing that. It's a whole different ballgame to, to go to work and admit to your coworkers that you believe this same Jesus has given you power to cast out demons and pray against unseen, invisible forces flying around you. Conversations get really quiet around the water cooler. You say stuff like that. You know what I mean? Promotions get real rare after you've revealed that. The truth is, I don't like talking about the devil any more than necessary. I just don't like it because, number one, I hate giving him any attention. I really do. I hate it. I would much rather focus on Jesus. And I would love to just talk all year long on the beauty of Jesus and his love and his kindness to to the outcast and the marginalized and and his command for us to show kindness, you know, to, to the poor and the needy and to be generous. The problem is that same Jesus that we love to talk about spent a shocking proportion of his ministry talking about the reality of evil, the reality of evil, talking about spiritual warfare, actually casting out spirits, doing battle against the forces of darkness, right? Having real conversations, arguments with the devil himself. Jesus wasn't having a conversation with a metaphor out in the wilderness. He was talking to the devil, And it it tells us in 1 John 3, 8, that destroying the works of Satan was the whole reason he came. This is why he came to destroy the works of darkness. So spiritual warfare was center stage in the ministry of Jesus. And there are a lot of Christians, I understand, who, who would kind of prefer to view the devil today. It's kind of a popular thought. But maybe the devil was just sort of a poetic personification of like the evil that exists in all men's hearts, you know, or something like that. And it sounds really good, but... The thing is, Jesus seems to insist on an actual, literal personhood of Satan. The reality of spirits, both good and bad, Jesus insists on this. I found it so interesting. He spoke about Satan more than any other character other than God. And there's an important reason for this. When Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago, it literally reads as though all hell broke loose. Because that's exactly what happened. Demonic activity came on the rise 
like never before, because those demons were actually threatened by his presence. They were threatened by the presence of Jesus in the earth. And we're going to look at a number of case studies of that throughout this series. Jesus explains it to some of the religious leaders like this. He says, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, that's something he was known for in his ministry, he made no secret about it, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. So he says exorcism of demons, it's just a word that means casting out demons, is the evidence of this power over the dark side. That was one of the evidences, right? Jesus comes and the demons go nuts. This wasn't something that we read happening a whole lot in the Old Testament. We don't read, you know, demons going crazy. Now Jesus has come. The demons go nuts. I love our backdrop here. Don't you love this? We have some very creative, awesome people here. I can go to them and tell them the sort of the theme of my, uh, my sermon series coming up, and they just come up with these, these brilliant ideas. We have the spirits of the demons and just fleeing because the kingdom of God has come here. There's one over here who's trying to escape, but the bass player is going to get him on the floor. <laughs> he doesn't stand a chance. Yeah. Jesus comes and he talks about the kingdom of God a lot. And that sounds really nice. Oh, the kingdom of God sounds sweet and fluffy, like maybe he's talking about heaven. But the kingdom of God refers to a way of living. It's a, way, it's a realm of existence in which there is one dominant will, the will of Father God. And it's a realm or it's this way of living where there's a king who's in charge. And we say as citizens of that kingdom, what we're saying is I want to live in the way of God, with him in charge, that God who is pure love. And Jesus reveals that the God of this kingdom, he forgives, he reconciles, and he pulls outsiders in, and he heals those who have been oppressed, not just oppressed by their human masters, but oppressed by the demons of darkness. And so the kingdom of God is, it's not just heaven. The kingdom of God is us coming together to submit to that authority, So when we do that, when we come together and submit to a higher authority, we are spreading the kingdom of heaven right here, the kingdom of God. And so we have to recognize there's this kingdom of God, but that also implies that there is an opposing kingdom. And that's the the land we live in. There's this opposing kingdom that sets its will against the kingdom of God. And that kingdom has its own would-be ruler. And so we find Jesus regularly asserted himself as the, the king of God's kingdom. And over in Mark, we read that Jesus says, it, it says that he was traveling throughout Galilee. And what was his ministry characterized? Preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. That was his ministry. Preaching in the synagogues, driving out demons. Preaching and driving out demons. So the dark side is real. And as Christians... It is incredibly important that we know how to do battle. We can't just, you know, take out our wands and say, expecto patronus and expect the demons to go away. That's, you know, it's not how it's going to happen in real life. So we have to know. The dark side is real. Now, let's acknowledge the other side to this too. Is there some, some weirdness that people do in the name of spiritual warfare? Sure. And I know a discussion like this, it always seems to bring out kind of the unhealthy fixation in some folks. And we have to acknowledge even that there have been people who have been abused by other folks in the name of spiritual warfare or in the name of spiritual authority. And there's no excuse for that. 
There's always the potential for abuse or misunderstanding when it comes to spiritual matters. And the truth is you can spend too much time obsessing over the devil. That's not what we want to do, is it? I don't believe that Jesus models that for us either. You know, seeing a demon behind every tree or treating every problem as a case of demonic possession. That's not healthy. As disciples who want to be more like Jesus, and that's what we come to church to do, to help each other become more like Jesus. If that's really our goal, then our goal is neither to ignore nor glorify the activity of the dark side. We can't do either one. We don't want to ignore it. We can't glorify it. We always want to resist that urge to, to overly fixate on the dark side, we fixate on Jesus. Fixate on Jesus. We keep our gaze on Jesus. Our eyes are on Jesus. He's the center of our faith. But what we will do in this series is dive fearlessly into Scripture and see what it has to say about spiritual warfare and see what it has to say about what Jesus has already done for us and what he says our role is in this ongoing battle. Because the cool part is you and I do have a role. We're not just called to sit back and let things happen, whatever they happen. We have a role to play. So let me give you a quick overview of kind of where we're headed here. So today, the origin of evil, we're going to talk about uh, who this enemy is, Satan, what the Bible has to say about where he comes from. Next week, we're going to look at, our, look at the tactics that Satan uh, uses so that we can better understand our role in spiritual warfare and the authority that Jesus has given us. In week three, we're going to dive into demons and demon possession and exorcism and all that stuff that, you know, sells the books. It's, it's, it's the exciting stuff. It's actually, you know, a small subset of spiritual warfare, but it's the stuff that they make movies about. And then, just like we did in our, uh, our last side-by-side series, we want to hear from you. And so we're going we're gonna to take the final week in the series for some Q&A to answer your questions having to do with spiritual warfare. So start sending in your questions now. Remember, you can email them to questions at gchurch.net, questions at gchurch.net. The easiest way, if you download the free church app off of your phone's app store, just uh, search for Generations Spring, and it'll pop right up. It's free, and it's got a great little button on there called Questions for Pastor, and they come right to me, and they'll wake me up in the middle of the night with your question. I'll be like, yes, that's a good one. Uh, and so, and, and it's completely anonymous too. If you're embarrassed about your question or something like that, you can, you can still send it in. Um, but we want to hear from you over the next few weeks. Send them in now. Don't wait for the, the Saturday before we do this. Um, send them in now so we can prepare. And if there's something we don't know, then man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask uh, my dad, who's, who's much more of an expert on this stuff than, than I am. And if we don't know, uh, well, we'll just tell you we don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> kind of brings us to two foundational statements we can make about this, this topic. To frame this topic, let's, let's say two things. Number one, there is a war going on. If you want to know, where does Generations Church stand on this stuff? We firmly believe there is a war going on, and behind the scenes, there is something, com- there is something raging all the time. And I'm convinced it would absolutely stun us uh, when we finally get to heaven and realize the spiritual activity that we have been involved in our whole lives. Number two, there is a war going on and there is way more going on than we can know right now. There's way more going on than we can know right now. Um, There's just a lot that we don't know. Hold on, I just lost my little... (laughs) 
talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> There's a lot going on that we don't know. We have to be humble enough to admit that. There's a lot going on that we don't know. The Bible gives us some fascinating pictures, but sometimes they're just glimpses of the unseen world. You know what I mean? And why does it only give us glimpses? Because the Bible is actually pretty practical about what God reveals to us. It's pretty practical. God never claims in Scripture to be giving us the whole picture of everything happening. And that's good, because if he did, the Bible would be about six trillion volumes long. We'd never be able to read it. And we'd never be able to sort through what's the part that really matters that we need to know. Right? If he told us everything, we, we wouldn't be able to do that. The Bible cares about how we're to live our lives. How we're to live our lives. And so God gives us enough information about the spiritual world that we know what to avoid and what to move toward. How do I identify the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness? How do I live more like Jesus as the king, as my king? And so we learn as we grow, and we learn, and we're discipled, and the Bible says study to show yourself approved, so we study, but eventually, you know what? We'll get to a point where we just don't know something. And that is the point we get to trust God. And God says, that's exactly what I intended the whole time. Yeah, you finally made it to the place where you're trusting in me, right? But the, let me tell you, the glimpses that the Bible does give us of what is happening are fascinating. These, there are stories about people who are going through their, their daily life and they're worried about something going on. And God, for just a moment, pulls back the curtain and these human beings who think they're all alone, suddenly they see these, uh, war, a glimpse of thousands of spiritual warriors, right, in chariots of fire, ready to go to battle. And then just like that, whoosh, the veil closes again. And it's a glimpse of what's happening around us all the time. Over in the book of Job, it talks about there's this fascinating little picture, this little story about a spiritual back and forth conversation going on between Satan and God that Job himself never finds out about. The hero of the story, Job, never finds out about this conversation. He has no idea. In fact, one of the central themes of the, of the book of Job is you have no idea what is really going on. This, this is happening. And Daniel chapter 10 is one of the most fascinating, weird uh, passages of the Bible. The main figure, Daniel, says, I, he has this vision. And he says, you know, I need God to give me some more insight into this vision that I've had. And so I'm going to pray and fast and ask God to send an angel who will help me interpret it. And so Daniel fasts and he prays all day. And he fasts and prays all the next day. And then the next day, and then a week goes by. He's fasting and praying. And then two weeks Three weeks goes by, and Daniel's like, God, I thought we were close, right? I, you know, when are you going to send somebody? Finally, an angel arrives, and Daniel is like, what took you so long? And this angel says, actually, I started on my way to you the first day you prayed, but the dark prince of Persia held me up in battle. Some kind of demonic spirit over that region or something like that. Oh, and Michael the archangel came to help me battle too, right? And so it's taken me three weeks to get here. Wait, what? What is that about? That's all we get about it. 
And then the angel tells them stuff about the prophecy, and they talk. And then the angel says, says well, I've got to get back to the battle now against that demon in Persia. And I'm afraid the prince of Greece is going to join in too, so. What? <laughs> That's it. He's gone. Just like that, we get this glimpse of some battle that is taking place in the spiritual realm all the time. It doesn't always come with an explanation. It's just a glimpse. David Pallison, one of the writers of a book called Understanding Spiritual Warfare, he says, our enemy works within the fog of war, and God does not always explain all that goes on in the fog. He's working within the fog of war. God doesn't always explain what goes on in the fog. But we will learn enough to keep us busy in this series. I can assure you of that, all right? So let's dive into some scripture that, that tells us about who this adversary of ours is. Who is this Satan? His name actually uh, tells us a lot about who he is. In the Hebrew, it was Satan. The Greek is Diablos, um, translated the devil. Uh, both of these names mean the adversary, the accuser, or the prosecutor. Uh, the Diablos, or the, the Satan, was the prosecuting attorney in the court of law. That was his job. The one who accuses, who says, you're guilty, you're going down. Prosecuting attorney. The Holy Spirit, we're told in the New Testament, is sent by Jesus to be our parakletos. That was the Greek word for the attorney, the defense. He's our parakletos. The one who says, I defend you. You're not guilty. You're justified. You're declared righteous. I've got your back. That's the Holy Spirit. Satan wants to accuse, wants to put us in prison, and God wants to free us and make sure that we receive his blessing. So, so that's one. There's other names for Satan that we read, uh, or the devil. They all tell us a little bit more about who he is. Uh, one name is Beelzebul. Jesus refers to him in one place as Lord of the Flies. It can also be translated as Lord of the False Gods, Beelzebul. And, uh, but, but, but he's a Lord. He's, he's insinuated that the, this devil is a Lord. He's one who proclaims his, his leadership. The prince of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of demons, God of this age. All of these are a claim, you notice, to authority, to rulership in a kingdom. He's also called the serpent, the dragon, the accuser, the tempter, the enemy, the evil one, deceiver, father of lies, murderer, destroyer. And now we're starting to get into some names that also reveal some of his tactics as well. We'll talk more about that uh, next week. And uh, also in our, in our home life groups this week, uh, this will be a, a good discussion. Now, where does Satan come from? Where did he come from? Now, this is an important question. It's not just an interesting academic question because one of the biggest objections that skeptics often have uh, when you tell them about God is this objection of, it's the problem of the existence of evil in a universe supposedly created by a supposedly good God, right? Where, why would this good God of yours create the devil? That seems like a really dumb idea. Why would he do that? And there's two passages in the Old Testament that seem to deal with the origin of evil, of Satan. We're going to start with one in Isaiah, and then we'll look at one in Ezekiel. And the thing is here, both of these passages are cryptic. They're interesting because they're both prophetic passages that, on one level, seem to be talking about a human ruler, a flesh and blood person. And at the same time, both of them seem to be, uh, seem to, to be a prof, they prophesy against the spiritual force behind the human ruler. So let's, let me show you what I mean. In Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12, we read this. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star. 
Now, some of your translations might say day star there. Um, the Hebrew word there is shining one, literally, shining one. Um, it's, it's the word uh, halal, the same root of the word hallelujah. And the, the, the verb hallelujah is praising. Hallel is a noun, is the shining one. How you have fallen from heaven, O shining one. When it was translated into Latin, by the way, they used the, the Latin word for shining one, which is lucifero, lucifer. It's a Latin word. In the King James Bible, if you're reading the King James here today, it probably says Lucifer. So they kept the Latin word Lucifer. It's not a Hebrew word, so they, you know, Latin didn't even exist when this was being written. And so, so they, they inserted a Latin word, Lucifer, into Hebrew scriptures. Um, the Hebrew word, like I said, is, is Hallel. This is where the name Lucifer comes from. So how you have fallen, most of the modern translations will now say uh, day star, morning star, or shining one. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son, son of the dawn. <clears throat> By the way, another side note. I just can't stop with the side notes. Uh, <laughs> someone else is called the morning, bright and morning star in the Bible. Jesus, Revelation 22 talks about Jesus as the morning star. So it's all, you make sure you're looking at context. And that shouldn't really be a surprising thing. It's not weird or anything like that. There's a number of times the same image is used for Satan or Jesus, right? Satan's described as the, a roaring lion. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Anyway, okay, let's keep reading. We got stuff to do. Uh, morning star, son of the dawn, you've been cast down to earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars. There's that issue of authority, of kingdom. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend upon the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Interesting thing to notice in this scripture, there are five I wills. I will, I will, I will. And, and Satan's will is at the center of understanding everything about who he is and his fall. His will stands opposed to God's will. Remember, we talked about those two kingdoms. And, and that is what marks Satan, this issue of his will. Did you know that you don't have to be a Satanist to oppose God. Right? You can say, I'm going to follow my own will, and that is, by definition, acting satanic. When you say, I am going to follow my own will, you're being like the one who asserted his will against the will of God. That is, in its essence, satanic. And you might say, no, I'm not trying to be a bad person, right? I don't want to follow Satan. I just, I'm just not into following God. I want to do what I want to do. But that is satanic. I will follow my will. I will. I will. We learn some more about this figure in Ezekiel 28. We're going to go over there. It's the whole chapter, but for the sake of time, I just want to point out a couple of features of this passage. The entire chapter of Ezekiel 28 is a prophecy against the king of Tyre. He's a real flesh and blood person. He's a regular guy, a ruler. And Ezekiel prophesies against this king of Tyre because of his pride. He lets him have it. It's named right in the first verse. He says in verse 1, In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a god. So here's this earthly king who's being prophesied against. For the next 10 verses, Ezekiel goes on with this prophecy. 
And then something really weird happens. Around verse 11, it's as though the prophet kind of takes this deep breath and starts all over the prophecy, this time from a spiritual perspective. And in verse 12, he says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, so we're no longer talking about a man. This is a supernatural creature, something that's beyond human. Every precious stone adorned you. And then he lists a whole bunch that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. <laughs> he talks about his beautiful adornments and stones. And, and then he says, and you were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walk among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So he was created, this figure was created beautiful and perfect. And now violence, the desire to do damage, to destroy is at the heart now of Satan. He says, so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you guardian cherub. By the way, when it talks about the cherub here, just forget everything you've ever seen in like Renaissance art, but the little fat babies with tiny little wings, that's not a cherub. In, in Ezekiel, in fact, other places in the book, it describes the cherubim. And these things are freaky. They are huge, fiery beings, lots of wings, got four faces. This says they're full of eyes. And they surround the throne, or we're told in Revelation, they surround the throne of God, praising him. These huge things. It's just this amazing scene. I mean, if you saw it, though, you would either be tempted to worship it or run screaming. Right? It's one of these things. I remember being a kid and being described all this and, you know, that they're in the throne room worshiping. And then I was told, you know, when we go to heaven, we'll get to, like, worship God in the throne room. And I was like, whoa! Right? Couldn't sleep for a week. Full of eyes. Come on. Um, guardian cherub, from around among the fiery stones, your heart became what? Proud. Proud. There it is. It's named. Your heart became proud. What was hinted at over in Isaiah's passage, I will, I will, I will, it's the will. Here it's named as pride. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and your splendor, so I threw you to the earth. So Satan, this creature created with splendor, and, and other scriptures even suggest that he may have been in charge of the worship of Father God. That, that he had like instruments built into his body. This amazing, majestic, just awesome creature. And, and his heart became proud. He turned his worship inward. He chose anti-love, self-glorification, pride. And this scene interestingly enough, would be repeated later on in the Garden of Eden with God's greatest creations, human beings. Beings who, were, who turned their worship inward, created perfectly, loved by God, but undone by their own pride. If you want to know what the majority of our spiritual warfare is actually preoccupied with, this is it. It's not performing exorcisms on uh, possessed people or like cleansing houses of, you know, haunted spirits. 
what our spiritual warfare, where it starts right here, is battling daily against this original prehistoric sin that wants to trap each one of us, and that is pride, the sin of pride. This is our greatest struggle for all of us today. It's our greatest struggle to make our will subject to the will of God, to be subjects of a greater king than just our egos. The most common warning when we look in the New Testament of the apostles to the church is to guard against pride. Pride, because pride is the deadly sin. It is the deadly sin that out of which all other sins grows, right? It is, it's the primordial ooze from which all evil evolves. And, and pride is different than every other sin, isn't it? Because by its very nature, pride is self-blinding. The, the more proud you become, the less likely you are to think that you struggle with the sin of pride. It's the opposite of every other sin. Every other sin is obvious to us, right? You can struggle with the sin of lust and be like, oh, why do I struggle with the sin of lust? It's, it drives me crazy. You can, you can struggle with uh, gluttony. Oh, I struggle with this. Why do, why do I want to eat all the time? It drives me crazy. Trust me. <laughs> you can struggle with the sin of anger. Why am I so angry? But at least you're self-aware, you know when you're sinning, right? The more proud you become, the less you'll ever consider the fact that you have a problem with pride. And the more you will think that everyone else is the one with the problem. It is the perfect storm of sin, isn't it? And it's the one sin you can't escape by being more good, by acting more good. You can be worship leader in the very throne room of heaven, have the best job in the universe, and be brought down low. You can say, thank you, God, for blessing me. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you, Lord, you've given me so many talents. Thank you for making me glorious. Thank you, God, for making me wonderful and making me fantastic. And ah, I've just imploded in on myself, and I've stopped thanking God, and I've just imploded in on myself, right? I'm amazing. Pride. And this is important because it helps explain this age-old objection. How does evil arise in a universe created by a good God? It's simple. Because out of pure goodness, pure beauty, we see the birth of evil spontaneously spring into existence. Pride doesn't need an external spark of evil to get it started. Right? It is the spontaneous evolution from wonder at God's presence into wonder directed at self. It's spiritual cancer. It it is life and love feeding on itself. That's what pride is. And this is why in Scripture, from top to bottom, you read throughout the New Testament, Scripture encourages humility as our primary posture. Humility. Submitting our will to the will of God, submitting ourselves to our fellow brothers and sisters. This is our primary posture, humility. It's foundational to what it means to live the Christian life. And when we come and we submit our will to God's will, we're doing something very powerful. 
when we submit ourselves, we are helping undo the works of Satan. You ever think about that? When we submit ourselves, we undo the works of Satan. We are saying, God, I want to follow your way. And when we do that, that is the, the most powerful first step to any spiritual warfare that we can engage in. To say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's a powerful first step in spiritual warfare. So, let me kind of quickly summarize a few facts that we can say with certainty about this enemy of ours, Satan, and then I want to offer a closing thought. Number one, Satan is real, personal, and powerful. He's real, personal, and powerful, but within limits. He, Satan is not just the personification of impersonal forces. He's not a metaphor for the evil that lurks within us all. Uh, you know, like Mother Nature. We may talk about Mother Nature. Mother Nature was really angry today or something like that, right? We don't really think there's a, a lady out there who looks like Maya Angelou making it rain or something like that, right? That's kind of where, that's where I go. Um, it's a metaphor. Sometimes we'll say that guy is, he, you know, boy, yeah, Dave's really wrestling with his demons or something like that. We don't mean demons, demons, right? It's a metaphor. We're using it in metaphorical terms. But when the Bible talks about demons, fallen angels, Satan, these kind of things, it is speaking of real personal evil, a real personal evil. He has real power, though, as we're going to see in the next week, that power is very limited, okay? Number two, Satan is not God's equal and opposite. This is another uh, area where kind of Hollywood has, has got a lot of pop culture today uh, a little bit misinformed. Satan was created by God. He's created by God. This isn't a battle between equals. Don't worry. We're not wondering who's going to win. This isn't a battle between, this isn't, you know, Yoda versus Vader. It's, it's not Germany versus Brazil in the World Cup. It's not a battle of equals here. This is more like Brazil versus my five-year-old daughter's Little League team, right? God is God. Satan is the created being. There's this idea in, in pop culture that good and evil are equal and opposite. And it comes from this idea called dualism. It's part of this kind of yin-yang universe. And where, you know, dark and light are always present in balance, and they're in like this eternal struggle. You know, this is kind of, you know, the force, you know, the, the Jedi versus the Sith. That they're always in balance, and they're always in struggle. But evil is not, this, this is not the reality of good and evil that we, we see described in Scripture. This is important as Christians to make sure we understand correctly. Don't be swayed by, by culture. Evil is not the opposite of good. Did you know the Bible presents evil as not the opposite of good, but as that which was good but is now corrupted? In almost every case, evil is some kind of corruption of something that may have something that originally was supposed to be good or some noble intent, right, or some need for or desire for justice or love or passion, and it's something corrupted. And so, so when it comes to Satan, he's not God's equal and opposite. He's a limited, he's a finite being. Uh, God alone is omnipotent, and God is ultimately the one in charge and the one who will have final say at the end of days. Amen. 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 Number three. Satan hates God, but because he cannot hurt God directly, Satan's mission is to destroy 
the people God loves. He wants to destroy you. He can't hurt God directly, so he wants to destroy you. Over in Revelations chapter 12, there's one last fascinating passage that also hints at the origin of Satan. It says, now remember, in Revelation, we have a lot of interesting things. It's, it's apocalyptic literature, so it uses a lot of metaphor, a lot of imagery. Don't, don't get hung up on taking everything exactly literal. But it says in verse 7, Then war break out, broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon is a picture of Satan. Fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. We're told in other parts of the Bible that in this, this event that occurred, this, this mysterious event that occurred in heaven when Satan rebelled and God cast him out, that he's such a father of lies, Satan is, that he was able to sway a third of the angels to come with him. And we call them fallen angels today. And later a voice from heaven announces this, Woe! To the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. Fury. Because he knows that his time is short. He's filled with fury. This is the emotion that Satan feels. The accuser. He hates your guts. He hates God. He hates the fact that God's will is ultimate. He's resentful that God created you in his image, that's, that's one step beyond anything ever said of the angels. But pe people, human beings were created in his image. And so he wants to get back at God, but he can't directly challenge God. So what do you do with all that fury? He stalks a world that is full of image bearers of God. He would get back at God by getting to you. He, that's, that's all he lives for now, is to destroy your life, to screw you up. You know, you, d you don't have to be a Satanist in order to make Satan happy. You just have to get distracted from following the will of God. He just has to get you sidetracked to get you forgetting your identity as a representative of the kingdom of heaven, as a citizen, an ambassador the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He will use any tactic he can, whether it's fear or terror, if that's how he can get you distracted, or just whispering, I don't exist. Just do your own thing. None of it's real. Whatever works, he's happy doing. And he works 24-7 and he never takes a day off. The most satanic prayer we can pray is, I will, I will, I will. Jesus, on the other hand, teaches us how to pray. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a powerful prayer. Your kingdom come. What you're saying is, Lord, as it is in heaven, I want it to be here on earth. I want to walk in your will. May this kingdom, this realm where you're in charge and things happen according to your will, may that apply to my life and every step I take. That is what he's saying. That's what we mean by we want his will. And 
here's so, so beautiful to me. There's a scene right before Jesus is crucified where he models this. He models this for us, what it looks like. It's no accident. It's right before the cross. Jesus is praying, and, and Jesus has this very real moment. And he's like, you know what, God, actually, if, if I want to tap into how I'm feeling, my personal will right now is maybe not to be tortured to death. That's how I feel. But I have a greater will than that. That overrides my immediate will. My immediate, I don't want to do this. What I really want is for the Father's will to be supreme. Jesus models that for us. And so we hear him praying in the garden just hours before his execution. Not my will, but yours be done. It's okay to want or wish or something to have desires. That itself is not the sin. But to put those desires beneath the desires of God is our calling to submit our will to the will of God. So I want to ask us right here today, right where we're sitting, what kingdom are you aligned with? What kingdom are you aligned with? Is there some area of your life? I'm not asking you, are you a Satanist here this morning? Right? If you are, this is for you too. But I'm talking to all the good, polished up Christians here today. Is there some area of your life where you can identify that satanic influence that says, no, 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 I will. I, I, I will. I want the benefits of loving God and him loving me, but just this one area of my life, this is for me only. This is for me. I, I know it's wrong, but I want, I want. The first step in our battle against the enemy is, is saying, Jesus, I want to align with you wholeheartedly. Let me tell you, don't worry about casting out demons right now. Don't get all excited about casting out demons until you have allowed the Holy Spirit to shine his light into the pride that exists in your heart. Don't, don't get those things out of order. There's a hilarious story in the New Testament of some folks who did that. They got all excited about casting out devils and their heart wasn't right. And the devil tore them up, <laughs> right? Jesus told him, you weren't ready for that, right? They weren't ready, the apostle told him. So I want to I invite us all to have the courage to pray, God, I want your will more than I want what I want. It's, it's humility that leads to maturity. It's humility and, and intimacy with God, which we all want. That begins with saying, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. So we, we want to have the courage to say, I want your will more than what I want. And maybe for some of us, we need the courage to admit, God, I really don't know if I do want what you want because I really like what I want. But please help me to want to want what you want. Sometimes that's the prayer. That's prayer number one. Help me to want to want what you want. This is the spiritual battlefield right now. This is it. This is the place of spiritual warfare. And I'd like to invite us all to surrender our wills to the king of the greater kingdom before we move forward in this series. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, praise you, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters, as I do for myself, that our wills may be humbled, that our egos may be put aside, all of our preconceptions, that we might pick up our cross, that we can die to ourselves, our own agendas for this life, all those hidden areas that we want to keep to ourselves, that we might live for you, trusting in you. Father, I thank you that in Jesus, we see, in Jesus, we see your heart toward us and we see what your kingdom looks like. It's a rulership of love and reconciliation and forgiveness. I pray that we would submit our wills to yours today. We would have the courage to say yes to you as our king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.